Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a living God. We thank you that you speak to your people, that you're not silent or mute, but that you have given to us your word. It is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask you this morning to speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Help us to be people who will hear what you're speaking, who will embrace it, and who will become obedient to it. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. Praise the Lord. Amen. God is good all the time because that is his nature with the East African accent, nature, because that is his nature. Well, thank you for that greeting because now I feel uh, at home and comfortable. That's the way many, many church services in Uganda begin with that kind of back and forth. But uh, I, I want to especially thank Father Scott for his gracious invitation to let, me, to let me be with you this morning and to share from God's word. I promised him I would not make the sermon a commercial for, uh, for GMM and for my ministry in Uganda, except for that little video. And, and for me to just say a, a huge thank you to this congregation who has sub- supported me for almost 20 years. I was in diapers when I went to Uganda, you see. Um, so, but you have been faithful in your support. Uh, from Saratoga Lane, you know, to this place here. For those of you that date back, and I see some of you in the congregation this morning. So really just a big thank you. But today, really, I wanted to focus on the Word of God from John chapter 1 today and the focus on John the Baptist. But before I dig into that, I just want to say that there are two kinds of people in the world. You know that, don't you? There are morning people, and there are night people. And you know what I mean. And you probably are married to the opposite. And you discovered that on your honeymoon, and you've been sorting it out ever since. So morning people, you know what a morning person is like. These are the people that wake up before the sun wakes up. And they, they might not even need an alarm. And when they wake up, They are happy. They smile. They might even sing. I had a roommate one time who whistled. God, she was hard. Uh, Because, you see, I'm not a morning person. And fortunately, everyone in my house when I was growing up, we were not morning people, so we all knew not to talk to each other until we were sufficiently caffeinated. All right, so um, if you are a night person... Uh, or rephrase this, if you are not a morning person, this is what morning looks like for you. This is what my morning was like because Scott told me I had to be here at 7.45. So you set one alarm clock. Now I have this nice alarm clock that fits under my pillow and it makes a noise and it vibrates like this, okay? So even if you have earplugs in, which is a secret for sleeping on a long-haul flight, by the way, if you have earplugs in, it will wake you up. So that alarm goes off, 
And what do you do with that alarm? You curse it. <laughs> All right, what are you doing? And you turn it off. You think you put it on snooze, but really it was a Freudian slip and you turned it off. But if you are really a non-morning person, then you know that about yourself because there's another alarm clock right on the bedside table right there. So now you set that one for about 10 minutes, like it was the snooze. You set that one for 10 minutes later, and then that one goes off. And you say to yourself, ah, what was that? Oh, it's the alarm. You grab it, and you turn it off, and then you throw it. All right, so, and you pull the covers back over your head. Now, if you really know yourself, there is a third clock in your room, and it's, you have to get out of bed to go and turn that one off. Do you know that trick? Yeah, okay, I'm glad I have some soulmates here. That one, you have to get out of bed, and now you might as well just stay up, but don't talk to me. Do not talk to me, because we need uh, lots of alarm clocks, and then we need caffeine. But here we are, you see it works. Um, now, hold that thought, and I will come back to that. But let's look at the gospel reading today, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. It's in your bulletin leaflet. There are Bibles. You have a Bible on your phone. Um, don't check your, your text messages, but you can please read the Bible passage. So here we are looking at John chapter 1, verse 19. And there was a lot of curiosity about who this guy John the Baptist was. All right, that's what this story is about, really. Who are you? Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now, it was not unusual in John's day, in Jesus' day, for there to be a rabbi who had a small group of disciples that uh, they they. Um, came together. They were uh, really an intense small group. They moved around together. The rabbi was teaching. This was how Jesus managed to bring some disciples together. John the Baptist was like a rabbi too, and he had brought his disciples together. So that part was not really very unusual. But there was something apparently about John that caused some concern at the home office in Jerusalem. So they send uh, priests and Levites. These are not small people. But they send big guns down to ask John, um, who are you? He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. So if that's your first answer, clearly people were expecting someone to come who was going to be the Christ, someone who was going to be the Messiah, someone who was going to be the Savior and rescue them from their situation. Now, you have to remember that at this time, the Jews were living in, under Roman occupation. All right, They had a colonial power that was uh, imposing their government on them. And what most Jews longed for was to overthrow that colonial power and reinstate the Jewish king in the line of David and that Jewish kingdom. 
That's what they all longed for. So for many, the idea of this savior, this Messiah, this Christ that's coming had some political overtones to it. Others saw it more in spiritual terms of releasing a a bound heart that was under captivity. But there was always that idea that maybe we might get our own king back and our own kingdom again. So John immediately disavows, I am not the cross. I am not that one. Do not put that on me. I am not that person. So now they're like, well, if you're not the Christ, who are you? Really, who are you? Are you Elijah? Well, you know, Elijah had been dead a long time. Well, we're not sure. He, he never died in the Bible. He was sort of taken up to heaven, but let's assume he died somehow. So, but he's been out of the picture for a long time. So are they expecting Elijah? Are you Elijah? Uh, no, John says, I'm not Elijah. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. All right, let's keep going down the list. Are you the prophet? And uh, John answers, no. So finally, in frustration, they say, who are you? Who are you? You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Who are you? Give us an answer because we have to take it back to those who sent us. So what do you say about yourself? So John here quotes uh, from Isaiah, the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So, you know, it's one of those classic Bible answers that's an answer that's not really an answer, right? Because you would like to really know, who are you? And he's like, okay, you're a voice crying in the desert. Well, why did they think, so I've asked myself, why did they think John may have been the prophet? What are they talking about here? Well, if you have a Bible or the one on your phone, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Now, Moses is speaking here to the Israelites, and, you know, Moses is really important to the Jewish people. He led them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, And God gave him the Ten Commandments and established a covenant uh, with Moses and the people there. So Moses is a really important guy in uh, Jewish history and in, in the Jewish people. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says to them, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like me, Moses, from among your own brothers. So God has told Moses that he is going to raise up another prophet just like him, someone of that same significance, that same importance, that same kind of leadership and defining moment in the life of a people. So God is going to raise up someone just like Moses. So who do you think they were referring to when They say, well, are you the prophet? Are you the one that's going to come after Moses that will be like another Moses for us? That's what they thought because everyone was expecting that. But alas, no, 
John was not that prophet. All right, well, why did they think that he was Elijah? Well, John the Baptist and Elijah had several things in common. First of all, they had the same uh, fashion designer. <laughs> they wore uh, camel hair garments with the hair on the inside. All right, so it would sort of toughen up your skin. It was a kind of ascetical thing. And they also seemed to have the same nutritionist <laughs> because they liked to eat locusts and wild honey. Now, uh, in case you're wondering, locusts are kosher, and so are grasshoppers. <laughs> I look, I've looked this up. Why? Why was this important for me to look up? Because in Uganda, at this time of the year, every year, it is grasshopper season. Do you know what grasshopper season is? Grasshopper season is when all the grasshoppers come out and fly around, and Ugandans love to eat grasshoppers. They set up a kind of local industrial way of harvesting grasshoppers. And what that looks like is you've got these uh, very tall iron sheets that are on angles like this, almost like a V shape, and they're very bright lights. So at night, the grasshoppers flock to the lights and they run right into that iron sheet and they stun themselves when they hit that iron sheet and then they all drop down into a way they have to collect them. And so there's a, a huge basket at the bottom of these iron sheets full of stunned grasshoppers. So then they harvest them and they pick off the legs and the wings and then they saute them in oil and put a lot of salt on it. And then they delight in them. They delight even more in asking the white American missionaries, have you ever eaten grasshoppers before? This is like a hazing rite of passage. <laughs> that right, you have to eat grasshoppers. And you look around and you tell yourself, all these people are eating grasshoppers and they are still alive. <laughs> so you can do this, Allison. And so you eat your grasshoppers your obligatory one time, and after that you can talk all about it every year when they ask you, do you eat grasshoppers? It's also part of the reason why I come to visit my mom in December, <laughs> so I can avoid grasshopper season. They taste like a salty oil that are a little crunchy, but they do look at you when you eat them. Anyway, John the Baptist, so this is why I looked up to see if I could get out of it because I thought maybe they're not kosher, but they are kosher. Um, so that's how I know they're kosher. Now, John the Baptist and Elijah had the same nutritionist. Plus, they preached the same kind of message. Um, and so people wondered, now, are you like deliberately showing us that you're following in the footsteps of Elijah here? Well, let's look and see a little bit more about this character, Elijah, and what their expectations were. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last 
book of the Old Testament, so find Matthew and go one page to the left. <laughs> one page to the left, Malachi chapter 4. Bear with me here, because this gives us great insight into what is going on with this passage in, in John's gospel. So here's what it says. Malachi the prophet says, surely the day is coming. Now listen for this word, the day, and then, and is coming, because you'll hear it several times in this passage. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. They'll be cut low. Uh, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So let's just understand what the prophet is saying here. He says there is a day that is coming when um, all of the wrong things in this world will be put right. There's a lot of problems in the world today, yes, but there were a lot of problems in the world then. Apparently that's part of being sinful. But there are a lot of problems in the world. And he says, but there's a day coming. Surely the day is coming when all the arrogant and the evildoers will become stubble, cut down. And that day that is coming, and it really is coming, that day that is coming will set even that stubble on fire. So you remember that people are living under a colonial uh, um, occupation. They're being oppressed. And, and there's also corruption even among their leaders. And there's corruption among the colonial power that is overpowering them. And so you just wonder, it, is it ever going to get better? And the answer is yes, that day is coming. Now, verse two, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. All right, I mean, what a picture of joy right? You've been confined, you've been squeezed in, you've been c contained, and all of a sudden the door is opened and they burst out jumping and dancing and leaping with joy. Then, but not only that, then you will trample down the wicked. Aha! Uh -huh. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. So he's talking about this coming day. There's a day coming when uh, every world will be put right. And that's a longing in almost everyone's heart. Whatever time and age or century we've lived in, we long for the day when the things that are wrong in the world will be put right. And this passage says, if you have been the perpetrator, perpetrators of that kind of evil, then recompense is coming. You are going to be leveled. And those who have been oppressed are going to be released and set free 
on that day. And that day is surely coming. Now, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Oh, there's Moses again. He reappears in this hope and in this passage. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5. This is really where I wanted you to, to pay attention and focus. Malachi says, see, he's speaking from the Lord here. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So here is the great hope that one day all the wrongs in the world will be put right and those who have been oppressed will be set free and there'll be healing. And before that day comes, it's a day of hope if you've been the righteous one. It's a day of judgment if you've been among the evil ones. But before that day comes, Elijah will come first. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great day comes, before that dreadful day comes. So you see, there's this hope. Now, this is what the Jews in Jerusalem are wondering. Okay, John, you're doing things a lot like Elijah. Does that mean that that this day we've been longing for for hundreds of years, does that mean this day is about to come? That's what they are asking for. Now, one more passage. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Moses and Elijah are the precursors of this great day that's coming. Now, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And many of you will be familiar with it, but let me just read through it. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them 
so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So I ask you this morning, how many alarms do you need to wake up? We have Moses telling us to wake up, this day is coming. We have all of the other prophets telling us to wake up, this day is coming. We have Elijah telling us to wake up, this day is coming. We have Malachi telling us to wake up, this day is coming. We have John the Baptist telling us to wake up, this day is coming. How many alarms do you need to wake up, to realize that Jesus is the one who is coming to usher in this great and dreadful day, as Malachi talks about it. This, that day when all the wrongs in the world will be put right. And when Jesus was born, that day began. It was inaugurated. It, 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 it started, and it's, it's in the process of unfolding, and it will be fully fulfilled at his second coming. But how many alarms do you need to wake up to recognize that Jesus is the one that all of these people have been pointing to? He's the one that makes sense of a world that sometimes doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Clearly, we cannot save ourselves. We've all tried. We've all read self-help books. We've all followed different diets. We've all tried to do everything we can to save ourselves. How many alarms do we need to know that we cannot do that? That we need the one who is coming, the savior of the world who has ushered in that great and terrible day and is bringing it to fulfillment and fruition at his second coming. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.